out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, um, it is the turn of Woody Woodmansey, who was the drummer with David Bowie and the Spiders from Mars. This is an interview I did um, at the end of 2018 when uh, he was in rehearsals with Tony Visconti with his band called Holy Holy, who were doing the early work of David Bowie. And um, yes, after some casual chat, as you do in the world that is showbiz, we got down to that exciting question that I put to him. Yes, about rehearsals as they were about to embark on a spring tour. And uh, this was Woody's response. Woody, it's over to you. Depending on how many new songs we put in, um, two days, really. We just go in and, and go through the set uh, maybe two or three times. Yes. Just just do it as like a show in rehearsal. And anything that falls apart, we handle it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But usually there's not that much. There might be a few chords. Oh, no, I think that's the so-and-so chord. Oh, yeah, you're right, you know. Yes. Okay. Um, and so then you... we're um, hot to trot. Yes. Well, do you do much rehearsing before individually, sort of going through it and think, I better just learn my parts and get my sort of body up to this? Yeah, obviously, you, physically, yeah, must, we, must be quite something. We do something. do that. Yeah. Yeah, we, indiv- we individually do that. I know Tony spends quite a lot of time practicing all his bass parts. And uh, I, I give all the tracks a listen just to uh, familiar, <laughs> familiarize myself. Yes. I shouldn't need to, but I do. It, it helps, you know. <laughs> but it must be quite an interesting experience, really, because obviously, you know, the the albums, you know, you know, obviously this is the the work that you you know you could be playing. Uh, the, probably the most iconic songs of all time in popular music, you know, alongside you know the Beatles, the Stones, Prince, you know, and obviously David Bowie yeah. is going to be there, isn't it? So it's it's interesting how, I mean, when you play the songs, is it the fact that you're going to try and make them as kind of as identical as possible or do you just kind of think well this is a live gig so it's going to be a little bit more different uh yeah there, there's always a, a bit of a looseness about it uh, otherwise you're too kind of rigid to communicate really mm. um you know when you're in a studio recording something like life on mars you're concentrating very much on the parts being in time right that you hit the you hit the symbols correctly to get the best sound um, as well as keeping a good feel and everything else, but live-wise, um, it, it's not that it's not that crucial. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, as long as you're in the general area of a symbol, it will it will go crash. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, but you know, we we always. Uh, I mean, even with David, you know, we we got the recordings right, um, but then when we put a live show together. The, the senior thing was always the atmosphere of that song or the, getting the message of that song across with the right feel from everybody. And he was more interested in that always than you you played a wrong note before the chorus or something like that. He, not not that we played wrong notes, but he wasn't that bothered. Yes. Um, it was well, more important. So we've, so we've done, in Holy Holy, we do that. We, we, it's the spirit of the song that um, that we're interested in because audiences are not stupid they know what it should feel like and what the the atmosphere of the song should be like in the in the room 
um, you know, there's probably 5,000 bands out there that could play this material if they studied it, but they might not get the right feeling on it, they might, the, the right emotion on it, you know. Yeah. Well, so, isn't... so we concentrate on that. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's an interesting one, really, because I hadn't appreciated this, and obviously it would have been hard to, that we, we've been around when all this kind of very iconic popular music, rock pop, whatever you call it, has been created, yeah. you know, from, you know, like 62, 63 with the Beatles, the Stones, and then continuing on. And we just kind of took it, you know, for granted. And then suddenly, think, yeah. oh, this is kind of interesting. So how this music is then going to be, the baton is kind of taken um, to the next generation is is kind of what I find is quite interesting because obviously there's the tri- tribute bands and then there's going to be people who are going to put them into musicals and develop them like this. So so obviously yeah. you know holy holy is definitely sort of keeping the essence and spirit of this kind of amazing music together. And the, the main person, well, <laughs> it's the vocal, isn't it? I mean that is kind of quite the critical part of all this. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean when when I asked. You know, when I decided to do the Man of Silver World as an album, it was only because we we never did that with David. We jumped that album. We recorded it, Mick Ronson and Tony Visconti playing bass and producing. And then we were straight into Hunky Dory. We didn't go out on the road and play that album. So, and we always wanted to. And yes. You know, um, I asked Tony, and he said, yeah, wherever you're playing, I'll be there. Um and you know what's been what's been quite eye opening has been some of the concerts you get a lot of teenagers you know sixteen to nineteen year olds and they come with those four albums um Man of the world hunky dory Ziggy and Aladdin Sen. and when it first started happening i I was assuming they were bringing you've you've brought it to for me to sign it for the, for your mum. You know? <laughs> they would go, no, no, but it's me, it's for me. These are my favourite albums, and I was a bit taken aback. Yes, well, and absolutely. I, you know, I would say to quite a few of them, but your mother and father would not have been together when we were touring <laughs> these albums, you know. And they go, yeah, but they are favourite, you know. This, yes. this is good. This is real music, you know. And it's like, wow, it's it's moving across the generations. It was kind of you know, proof that that was occurring, which was nice, you know. Well, it's interesting because last year I did an interview with the photographer Terry O'Neill because he just kind of published, or they just published the book of his kind of that Ziggy Stardust kind of period and possibly that famous concert. And and obviously yeah. he suddenly had all these kind of photographs and we've obviously seen quite a few, but then as as anybody who becomes slightly obsessive about it, you just want to see all the photographs, don't you? Even the sl- yeah. not so good ones. And, and again, they put this beautiful yeah. book together and I'd seen, you know, other books that have come out which are kind of even earlier pictures where David was doing his early mime stuff. And it's like, yes, anything that he's got. And then this year, you know, there was the Glastonbury, Glastonbury DVDs come yeah, out yeah. Um, and, and sort of album. And, and what was quite interesting and probably, oh God, it's probably frighteningly quite a long time ago, when the BBC brought out that triple or double CD package of his uh, sessions where John Peel is announcing the band. And, the, and it sounds like the, ba- you know, those early, some of those early sessions that John Peel did on probably 
is it Top Gear, I think the programme was called. Yeah, yeah. And he was sort of saying who the band was and everyone was a bit unsure who the band were in those very early days when obviously the, the Spiders from Mars, and you obviously weren't called that in Hull, um, were, were just kind of jamming with David at that time. So did it get together, was it kind of quite an organic process that those early kind of lineups happened? Yeah, it was, I mean... Uh... To be honest, it, it was, you know, when we first joined him and we were doing those shows, um, particularly the early John Peel ones, um, he, he wasn't that sure how he was going to change direction and, and what he was going to do. So it was just pulling anybody that will help it because I'm not quite sure what I want to do on this. So he'd pull friends in to sing bits and... Um, so it was a very organic free-for-all, really. Oh, you sing that bit, and then, oh, you sing Bob song for Bob Dylan, you do that one, you know. He wasn't that um, confident in kind of holding his position as, I am this, this is me, and I do it this way. He hadn't really got that together at that point. Mm. And we were, you know, I remember Trevor... I think we did 12 tracks on one John Peel thing and Trevor Boulder had just really come down from Hull. I think it was his first day down and he was given, you've got to learn these 12 tracks for tomorrow. You're on the you're on the John Peel show. And he was like, oh my God, what have I stepped into, you know? Um, but from those early stages, you, you, you kind of got a feel that, okay, this works, you know, this Amongst all the other bits and pieces that had been added, there was a nucleus there that could do their thing. Yes. Um, as as an individual musician, he knew what he was doing. Mick did, Trevor did, I did, and David did on acoustic and singing. Amongst the other stuff, you could hear that. Um, yes. You know, at, at that time, we, we were looking forward to really going out and playing live, and it wasn't really happening. We... We weren't we weren't doing that enough, um, and at one point, you know, Mick and I, in fact, just before Trevor came down, Mick and I left. We actually went back to Hull and formed another band, and we were playing University Circuit at the time. Uh, and then David called us up again after a few months and said, "Look, I need you to come back. I'm going to be doing another album, and I need you guys back, you know, because that." That worked. What we had worked. Yes, and it was quite because um, in- it was quite interesting. Because obviously, looking back now, it all seems fine. But 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 obviously, at the time, there was that very sort of definite sixties counterculture hippie period, with you know all mm. the classics, you know, from the Doors, the Hendrix, um, you know, the the whole Woodstock thing. And obviously, by the end of the seventies, um, end of the sixties, end of the sixties, yeah. you know, it, the party had slightly died because because you had Jimi Hendrix, Morrison, and also Joplin die, and then you had you know after Woodstock you had Altamont, and there was that kind of whole horrendous scene, and a lot of those characters who created so much of that counterculture, you know, not just the stars, but the writers and people who put on a lot of those events were kind of giving, retiring because they'd, they'd had enough, they'd had too many drugs, the thing, you know, the party had got soured. So when you guys came along, you must have felt a bit of a strange one because obviously initially you must, you know, did it feel, I suppose that's what I'm trying to say, did it feel like, 
oh, has the party, was that the, you know, because pop music was looked upon as it was going to last a few years and then it would finish again, wouldn't it? But obviously you came along and now it, we can say, oh God, of course it was going to continue. But I just wondered, you know, because David and the Spiders from Mars looked so different, whether it was like people took you seriously. Well, it was, it was, um, I guess we looked on it, you know, we'd come up through those bands. We'd come up through the progressive rock side and we'd learned how to do Cream and Hendrix and Zeppelin and we'd kind of done that um, in our in our um, musical apprenticeships. So we, we understood that music. Um, and at the time, there, wasn't, there was nothing really new um, coming along to say, oh, that's different, you know. Um, yes. So you know, Dave, David's thing was always to brighten it up, to brighten up the business uh, and the entertainment field, to throw some controversy in there, to make it like it should it should be, um, and to do new things and try new things. Um, and we, you know, it didn't take that much to convince us of that direction. That yeah, it did need that. But at the same time, you you thought, well, when you immerse yourself a hundred percent into that kind of a an outfit, it's it's either a career maker or breaker. <laughs> do, yes. do you know what I mean? Absolutely. You, you walk out there, and if it's not a good song and you don't deliver, then you look like a circus. Do you know what I mean? You look like a, a gimmicky clown. You look like Abba in those early shots with the boots on yeah. where, you or, know, or it, Gary it, Glitter it was more Gary Glitter really wasn't it yeah, that, well, that let's was... not go there <laughs> <laughs> but yeah yes. yeah. so you you always have you know maybe that was a bit of the impetus to make sure we got it good <laughs> make sure yes. the music was good you know but one character but, uh, you know when David started writing Hunky Dory and that um, he'd changed his uh, he was a he was 100% confident on the writing, when he brought us a song, it was a completed song as far as intro, verse, chorus, middle eight, next verse, chorus, solo bit, end. You know, you you had no doubts about what it was going to do, um, and he was, it, which is probably why it worked. He want he wanted that freshness when yes. you played it. He wanted that. Not you've been through it ten times. You know, we, you know, we did like Gene Genie would be one take. First time we'd ever played it. Starman was out of the first take or the second take. We didn't do three. And a lot of them, you know, Life on Mars was the second one we did. Uh, and at first we thought, oh, wow, well, he lost the plot, you know, because um, we, we weren't used to working like that. And then he would say, okay, let me put my 12 string on. Okay, oh, that's sounding nice, you know. Uh, okay, I'll go do a vocal, and he would do that, and then the whole thing would just take on a a life of its own, yes. you know. And it wasn't just the vocal; it was the rightness of all the other parts as well. Yes. Um, and he realised that he didn't want you to labour it; he didn't want you to work out these musical, technically a hundred percent perfect parts. He just he wanted as near to perfect as you could get it, but. The senior thing was make it feel good. I mm. want to feel it, you know. And we so we learned how to do that really quick, you know, because you you would you would only get that amount of time. 
to record it and you didn't want to do a, 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 a lousy job, yes. you know, uh, and you wanted it right for the song. So it made you think of the right things and it put you on the edge. And so a lot of those tracks, I think, were, because they were recorded that way, they have that freshness. And I think a lot of music nowadays suffers because they can do it 90 times. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They can do the drum thing 90 times and they can mess about with the keyboards and put it through this effect and that. And if that still isn't really happening, well, let's put it through this machine. And and so you end up, you listen to it on the radio when it's finished and you go, I don't really get the idea that there's a bass player on that or that there's a keyboard player even maybe. You know, you you can't see a band. It 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 loses something. Yes. It loses that organic. Humans made this, and we always, <laughs> nearly always had that. Humans definitely made this. You know about our music. Well, I remember on that uh, John Peel session, there was one track that starts, and then you can hear probably David say louder. And I always quite like that. You know, I'm glad that you know that has been sort of part. You know, it's been kept because. It, Again, it was like a live band. I always remember the you know characters of um, Black Sabbath of all bands of that kind of um, that first album that came out. They sort of banged it out in a day because it's like, well, we've been rehearsing yeah. it, we've been playing it live. We don't really need to spend months, and we have absolutely no money, so we're going to have to do it in one yeah. take. And they did it, and it's like a classic. So you either got it or you haven't really. Yeah, and, and time time is an enemy of of good music. It's an enemy of feel, and it's an enemy of getting the right one you know you spend too much time then you then you're trying to get a perfect rendition of something and art and good music is not a perfect rendition of something yes it's it's like in that limited time that you've allotted can you do it can yes. you communicate because you're trying to communicate can you do it or not you know and if you couldn't back then, even with David, you would be out the door. <laughs> <laughs> was, that, was, that, I mean? was that kind of just an impatience on kind of his part more than the, the pressure of the recording? It was studio? probably both. It was it was the fact that his his attention span, you know, once he'd kind of got something across to you, uh, he wanted it then and there done, and he got bored. Um, but also that that he, he knew from experience that you're killing something if you keep going. Yes. You, you're just killing it. And he didn't want that, you know. Well, I, I'm pretty sure he knew that, yes. you know, because, but, you know, we soon realized that uh, we never spoke about it, but we we all kind of knew that. And just briefly, because I know we're just about out of time, and coming, just jumping a few decades. I mean, I've, always, yeah. I've, I've read your book, which was fantastic, and I have to say it was um, kind of quite... Uh, Boggling, really, and and that story, thank you. you know, it's, yeah, well, you know, it must have taken a lot. Not, to not the boggling bit, but you know, thank you. <laughs> well, there was a, there was a, there was a lot there, and and obviously you you put a lot of emotion and feeling into it. But that story at the end, not completely the end, but the the one where you were playing a gig in I think New York on David's birthday, and yeah, and Tony, the high line. and yeah. Tony decides to phone him on his birthday to wish him a happy birthday from the stage, which again, because you obviously you know. 
I mean, it, being rock and roll it is always difficult, you know, and things didn't finish well with the spiders and it sounded awful, really. But then, you know, having that moment on stage playing the music and having happy birthday is kind of boggling because, you know, without being a, a particular spoiler, it's kind of he dies the next day, which I just found like, God, as timing goes, it would have been, you know, a, a Hollywood script would have thrown that one out. But that happened. And, you know, it was just yeah, like I had to reread that, actually. <laughs> and, and then go off and have a coffee because I was like, God, I can't believe that story. You know, it's like yeah, it was very surreal, very surreal for us. Yes, because you know it was the beginning of an American tour, and uh, it was a real high point for us to chat with him, and uh, and then the whole scene of getting the audience to sing Happy Birthday, and then him saying, "Well, Black Star came out today, asked them what they thought to it," and the audience went mental. And yes. he said, oh, really nice. Thanks for ringing. Catch you later. Good luck with the tour, you know. Yes. So we were obviously walking about two feet off the ground, you know. And then to get that call, yes. by the time we got to Canada, it was like somebody just pulled the, pulled the magic carpet from under you, you know. I know. So that um, was um, unbelievable. That was, that was quite tough continuing. I mean, it was the right thing to do, we found out. But it was hard because you could not throw that information out of your head when you were on stage. You were very aware of it, you know. Yeah, God. Anyway, look, I think... Anyway, that is uh, the end of the conversation interview, whatever you like to call these things. Anyway, that was me in conversation with Woody Woodmancy from The Spiders of Mars, who was talking about their forthcoming uh, spring tour that was happening in 2019 with the one and only Tony Visconti. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Anyway, have a great week, stay safe and um, tune in for more chat.